So questions. I, I wouldn't at all be surprised if there's a fair amount of uh, a fair amount of discussion here. Is Zeb still back there? Or did he take off? Can you? I want to know eventually. Can you look up for me which king it was and which pope where the king had to kneel in the snow for three days outside the Vatican because the pope shut off communion? Thank you. It's, no, it's a remarkable, a remarkable piece of church history of just the power the Vatican had at, at the height of its power in the Middle Ages and how that power was wielded. Renee. Okay, so um, I was at a Lutheran church in Florida with my sister because she didn't want to go to the other one mm-hmm. where they talked about Romans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they were okay. like doing this thing about what the Lutherans yeah. believe. Sure. And do they believe the same thing as the Roman Catholics about communion? No. no, they don't. They believe something similar. So let me, now I am admittedly um, not nearly as studied on Lutheranism as I am Catholicism, and I wouldn't say I'm crazy. I, I feel competent with Catholicism, what they teach. I think I understand Lutheranism, so I'd really say go back to the original sources. Their, their catechisms are online. You can look them up. You can get them in their own words. So to give a spectrum, you've got on the highest view, or the, the most uh, the most serious or significant view of the Lord's Supper would be Catholicism with transubstantiation. Then you've got Luther, who who develops consubstantiation. And then you've got various levels of it being assigned. However, even in the Reformed denominations, Presbyterian denominations, you still get sacramental language. You still get the, the Lord's Supper uh, in places, not, not as a saving means of grace, but as a sanctifying means of grace. Um, is, is still sa- that, that's really what's behind the sacramentum, sacramental language, is sacerdotalism, is the notion of a physical vehicle or means of grace. Grace coming through a physical object or a physical rite or something. Um, and whereas I, 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 I'm with Ulrich Zwingli, I think it's a sign. I think it's a memorial sign. And I think God can take signs pretty seriously. Um, but that's kind of the spectrum. So in the Roman Catholic understanding, literally the bread and the, the wine literally become the, the body and the blood of Christ. And it's, it's when the priest um, says, this is my body, um, that that happens. They actually have casuistry. Casuistry is case law, like in the case of this, this, in the case of this, this. They actually have ca- casuistry in, in Rome. For what would happen to any leftover Eucharist? What would happen if, literally, they go this far, if a mouse were to eat the Eucharist, you couldn't kill the mouse. No, 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 because they take it seriously. Once it's transformed, this is Rome, once it's become the body and blood of Jesus, it's no normal thing. They take it really seriously. But they also then view it literally as necessary to continue being in a state of grace. Have you found the king yet? I did. Um, so it was, uh, this is Pope Gregory Seventh and King Henry IV yeah. uh, in 1077. Uh, apparently, the the specific issue, like Gregory was, um, from what I'm seeing, like very politically minded, as many yeah. of the popes of that time were. Um, and um, Henry was a king and uh, wanted to do what kings do. Um, and so basically, from what I can understand, uh, Henry wanted to be in charge of appointing bishops in his jurisdiction, which was uh, Holy Roman Emperor, Holy Roman Empire slash Germany. Uh, Gregory, I think, probably reasonably said, "Hey, this is a church thing. You don't get to choose that." Um, so then Henry and his servants um, had to wait. Basically, so the Pope didn't make him kneel for three days. He made him wait outside Rome for three days. And then, um, then allowed him to like walk barefoot through the snow. So, if you're wondering what power could the Pope, because the Pope had a small armed force, but it wasn't like the Pope had a majestic army. What type of power could the Pope at that time flex? 11th century, it was the power to shut off communion. It was the power to um, excommunicate an entire country. The the Rome would tell their priests not to offer the Eucharist. And the consequence of that in Roman Catholic theology, as clearly understood by the peasants and the laity, was you're going to hell. So you end up with peasant revolt. You end up with civil war and discontent. And so the threat of that caused Henry IV to come and humble himself and wait outside the Vatican for three days before he was let in. That's 
the logic behind that. Um, now the Pope gets weakened over time, but that, that, that's probably the high mark of, of Rome. But they've got an entire sacerdotal system where, where um, grace is administered through various conduits, but the most regular, consistent, and necessary would be the Eucharist. Um, okay, so that's Rome's views. Transis- to, give, to give you an idea even further, um, so... Part of the question when when you think when you think the uh, the sign is more than a sign and in, in some sense the thing itself, it becomes really important to make sure when is it the thing itself? When does that happen? What constitutes a valid um, use of the sign? And so one of the problems the early church ran into with the Donatists in the fourth fifth century when when Constantine legalizes Christianity is is someone's baptism valid if the person who baptized them later apostatized is someone's appointment to bishop valid if the person who laid hands on them later denied Christ under persecution and so the the question of what gives the ordinances the signs their the validity was raised and the donatists were a movement a purifying movement that basically said look if 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 you're ba- if you were baptized by somebody if you were appointed a bishop by somebody who later proved to deny Christ then you're no that baptism's not valid that that um that appointment to office isn't valid and so you could imagine what type of problems they ran into in the church so Augustine or Augustine, um, he comes up with a solution in the fifth century that the the rites, the sacraments, are rightly administered if they're performed rightly. It doesn't matter who's performing them. Um, this, if you if you get the uh, two part thing by uh, the two part CD by Mandy's office on uh, the Protestant and Catholic understanding of salvation, R.C. Sproul does a great job of unpacking this. And the Latin, I'm probably going to butcher it is it works to the working of the work, ex operatus operata. Um, so as long as, the, so, the, so uh, the, the answer Rome embraces after Augustine comes up with it is that the rites, the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, they are rightly administered as long as they are done properly. It doesn't, at the end of the day, finally matter um, whether the person operating them proves to be a genuine believer or not. Just matters are done properly. Now, the, the weakness of that approach is it tends towards magic and alchemy. It sounds like I don't want to. I don't want to strawman it. But basically, it's like say the spell properly, and you don't need to have magical power. You just say the spell properly. And because of this approach, and because of the corruption in Luther's day, do you know where the expression "hocus pocus" comes from? This is you can look this up. This is not a, 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 an old tale. What, what, so you've got, you know, the classic understanding, your first, if you're a medieval lord, your first son's an heir, your second son goes in the military, and your third son goes into the priesthood. And so simony, named after Simon Magus, is the, is the art of buying ecclesiastical offices. Um, and that was going on all over the place. And so you had Catholic priests who had no real training, who didn't really understand what they were doing. But because of the doctrine of the working of the work, as long as they said it properly, it counts. What part of the Latin mass technically does the wafer become the body of Christ? Horus S. Corpus. This is my body. That's where hocus pocus comes from. Because people who had no idea what they were saying and no idea what it meant just knew when I say hocus pocus, Horus S. Corpus, this wafer becomes the body of Christ. That's, that, that's part of the reason the Reformation happened is the corruption and the ignorance and the, the hypocrisy was so greatly on display. You had just a lot of Catholic priests who were completely immoral, completely bone ignorant. And, and Luther's, pre- I mean, Luther didn't initially try to separate from the church. He just wanted to reform the church and call out many of the gross, blatant problems and he assumed the Pope, when he understood what was going on, would join him in the calling for purification. And instead, the Pope's like, shut up, stop talking about that. And then eventually the rift happened. Um, sort of not unlike our uh, the, the American Revolution, where initially the the, uh, the colonies wanted simply political reform, and, and eventually it became a, a rift that was, was not mendable. My batteries? Oh, okay. They're almost gone. Okay. Hold on. So pause for one moment. While Jeremy's switching out, um, some of you who, speaking of Luther, some of you who um, maybe have read some about Martin Luther know that when first he, as a, as a 
went to administer the sacraments, he was terrified and, and had, couldn't finish it. And, and the first time I read that, I remember thinking, gosh, why was such a, an erudite and well-learned man and such a devout man so afraid to stand up in front and yeah. administer the Mass? Well, it, by the working of the works, you know, if you believe that there's actually things that are salvific going on and it has to be done perfectly correctly, hence some of his nervousness at doing this for the first time. He's scared to get it wrong. You've got the body of God in your hands. Yeah. The blood of God in your cup. So, yeah. That's sidebar about Luther. If that was true, that'd be pretty heavy-duty stuff to be doing, yeah. Um, so then, Luther, um, and Lutheranism, pretty uniquely, I think they're the only denomination, it's possible the Episcopals are something close to this as well. I don't, I'm, again, denominations I'm not super familiar with, so I want to be careful. Lutheran develops consubstantiation, which is kind of like having a foot in both worlds, I think. So the Anglicanism thing- and Episcopalianism is like, it's going to depend a lot on like who's doing it. Yeah. it. Because it's very, it started off very much as like an Anglo Catholicism. Yeah. And then in the once the Reformation really got kicked off in in Britain, it uh, it got weird. And after that, so it's it's kind of the Anglican world is all over the place. On yeah, that. yeah. And depending on whether it's the Anglicanism in, in Australia, which can be pretty sound, and which right. which cities in Australia? Yeah, exactly. I think it's like yeah. Sydney. They, they were yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. No, I got you. So so what Luther? As I understand this, and I, I can probably go back and check this out to make sure I'm clarified. Luther using Platonic form categories. Um, says consubstantiation. So he doesn't deny that the bread is bread and it stays bread and the wine is wine and it stays wine. But in, with, around, and under the bread, which is the physical manifestation of the object, its essence is Christ's body and blood there as well. Now, that, to my mind, requires platonic forms, which I'm not even sure I buy, and it seems kind of. I was asked beforehand why why Lutherans say that. And again, I can go back and look, but my, my understanding is simply Luther, growing up a Catholic monk and priest, has a really hard time leaving behind that view. Um, so, so the Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiation would say, no, it's not physically. You put it under a microscope; it's not going to physically look any different. It's still bread; it's still wine. However, spiritually, in, with, around, and under. Um, Christ's body and blood is present, and and it's still a means of grace, not necessarily saving grace, but a, a, a sacrament, a means of grace. Then you get to um, move over into the view that it's a memorial. However, in some of the high Reformed churches, you still get kind of almost a sacrament. Well, not almost. They'll they'll use the term sacrament. Um, they're not saying it saves. They are saying this is a normal means that God gives and infuses grace to his people. And you heard me say this morning, I'm I'm not aware of any reason to think partaking in the Lord's Supper administers any more grace than any time God's people act in faith and obedience. I think all, whenever we're acting in faith, whenever we're acting obediently, there's a grace that comes through that, sure. But I, I would know of no reason to think that. So that's briefly, and I'll try to be more informed on Lutheranism next time. I just don't like talking about things I don't really know. Um, Jeremy? Yeah. I was just, I was just going to say, you, you mentioned R.C. Sproul, and if anybody wants to go back and look at a lot of that, he, he has massive archives yeah. on and yeah. wonderful treatment on yeah. Catholicism and just yeah. Lutheranism and, and how it all, way, way over my head, but it, it's... I mean, he's got some just really good stuff. Well, if you if you haven't checked it out, it's so good. It was at a Shepherd's Conference that I was at 18 years ago. He did in two messages, a, a Catholic understanding of justification and a Protestant understanding of justification. And it's detailed and it's accurate and it's fantastic. There's two messages. And we've got a couple of copies of them back by the secretary's office in a little CD case. Seriously, you should get a hold of that. And, and check it out. It is. It is. I've probably listened to it six or seven times just for clarity. He's not. He's not trying to beat it up. He's like, no, this is what they believe, and you can go check and see this is what they believe. Um, you can go to the Vatican um, online. You know, you, when you get your websites like VU, you know, the end or VA. There's a V. Anyway, you, you know, you're at the real site. You can read their catechism. You can read them say the mass is a bloodless sacrifice a reoffering up of the body of Christ that atones for sin. 
like, okay, yeah, we, we believe some pretty different things about this then, yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Jim. So, do you see any parallels between this teaching on if you eat my flesh and drink my blood to Jesus using parables to teach as, well, as far as maybe to almost uh, misdirect the hearer. Possibly, although I think here he gives the meaning. The people pick up on the bread. They get it. So if you track the flow of the topic of discussion, they find Jesus. They say, hey, fancy meeting you here, Jesus. When did you get here? And then Jesus rebukes them and says, truly, truly, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the bread. And they say, okay, then um, what sign do you do? That we they ask what the works of God are. He says, believe. That's okay. What works do you do that we might believe? And then they suggest bread again. And they've already put on the table, you're the prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. So we've got the context of Moses. Moses presided over manna. They remind Jesus, our fathers ain't man in the wilderness. Jesus has to tell them, well, it wasn't Moses who gave you the manna, but God who gave you the manna. And now we're talking about food. And just as Moses himself, and I read this in Deuteronomy, yeah, I'll read it to you again. Deut yes, it is a metaphor, but there's a lot more clear linkage to this. So Moses in Deuteronomy 8 tells the people of Israel, this is part of the reason God fed them with manna. Why, why do it that way? You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know whether what, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. So the very, the very institution of manna and causing the people day by day, I mean, think how totally dependent you are on God. Either the man is there or you go hungry. You are not allowed to save it up. You can only, unless it's the day before the Sabbath, you can only gather today's manna today. Each and every day, you're absolutely cast upon nothing but the grace of God, which is the reality for each and every one of us, right? Except because we've got some money in the bank, because we've got some savings, we're not nearly as aware of it as when each and every day, either the miracle magic food's there or we die. And God did that to humble them, and he did it to teach them that man doesn't live by bread alone. So the very first institution of manna was meant to point to something beyond itself. So when Jesus, and I, again, I take 35 as the clear key. Now, they aren't tracking, and there's a sense in which they're confused. Maybe they don't get it. I mean, this, this is a pattern in John. I didn't mention this, but you got Nicodemus, you know, how can a man be born a second time? The woman at the well, are you greater than our father? You don't have anything to draw with. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? And here, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, there's a, there's a, and Jesus destroyed this temple in the three days. I'll raise it. There's a continuing pattern of people not tracking with Jesus. Right. But I don't think this is, sometimes he speaks clearly in a way no one can get. He's really, this is, I'd put somewhere in between. Um, because he's going to turn to his disciples and there seems to be a sort of like, look, do you guys at least not get it? I mean, I get that the crowd doesn't get it. I get that the Jews don't get it. We're going to pick up next week. His disciples don't get it. And not only do they not get it, they don't want to get it. They want to go home. And so there's multiple layers of winnowing here. So yeah, maybe the crowd and the people in the synagogue right over their head, but the disciples, the, the apostles, and we're going to winnow this thing down real fast. Yeah. And so, no, I do think there's a sense in which Jesus is, oh, I was talking to Daniel about this, hardening them. Light either melts or light hardens. He's already said you don't believe. And as he begins to speak this teaching, it, it, it accelerates that evidence. You might look initially and think, man, these people are doing pretty good. They went out to see Jesus. They slept in the ground, almost certainly, because they woke up in the same place and then the boats came out. And they, they followed him the next day. You know, what would you think of the people who follow Jesus day after day? And they, they travel and they go find him again and they call him rabbi. And they say, this is the prophet who's come into the world. You'd think some pretty good things about them. 
And we're going to see in very short order, they don't believe, they're doing this for the wrong reasons, and they're going to go home. And so Jesus' teaching does kind of bring that more and more to light. It, it, it causes that unbelief to evidence itself um, more clearly. But it is understandable. It's not like he's cheating. It's not like, well, that's not fair. Again, I, to me, verse 35 is the metaphorical key. And once you track verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me will never thirst. No problem. And I don't think they're literally thinking he's offering up his body. He's about to cut off a finger or something. They're just, what is it? Who's, how is he going to do this? You know, they're, they're stumbling all over it. But uh, yeah, that, I don't know if that answers your question, Jim, but that is my answer. Yeah, there was, uh, yeah. I'm thinking of at least the parable of the seed or the sower that where Jesus actually flat explains out, these things, that parable. Oh, no. In Luke, in Luke okay. 8 and 9, Jesus tells the disciples, I speak in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And he speaks in parables. Let's go there. Let's go to Luke real fast. Um, and this is something I hear people I want to ask you to raise your hand if you've heard someone say this, but I've heard plenty of people say, Jesus spoke in parables so he could reach the common person. He put the cookies on the low shelf, and he spoke in common metaphors anyone can understand. Except nowhere does he say that's why he says parables, and the reason he gives a parable is a little different. Luke 8 tells the parable of the sower. Um, and pick it up in verse 8, Luke 8, 8. Some fell into the good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. He said these things, as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. wonder what that means. Verse 9, when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. To others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. That's the exact opposite reason I frequently hear people give for why Jesus spoke in parables. He spoke in parables to hide blind and deafen people, not to make it easier to understand. That's not his stated reason. But for others, they're in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they understand, which is why in the end of verse 8, he says, he was ears to hear, let him hear. There are some people who my father has given ears to hear and eyes to see. And this is for them. And for the rest of you, it's going to go over your heads. Um, so verse 11, now the par- he tells them the parable um, is the word of God, the ones along the path. Okay, so then he says, uh, verse 18, there we go, verse 18. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Hearing Jesus is dangerous because it, it, it raises the culpability bar. And so Jesus is, is telling them, to you, back to verse 10, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. It's been given to them. But for others, they're in parables. So, yeah, there's part of Jesus' teaching that's meant to go over the heads of some people, while people with eyes to see and ears to hear are going to get it. That's part of his ministry. Um, that could be what's going on here. We don't get any of those markers that Luke gives us because Jesus would say, whoever has ears, once we're told this, whenever Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Oh, okay, you're doing that thing. Some of you are going to get this, and I'm talking to those of you, and the rest of you is going to go over your head, and that's okay. Um, John doesn't give me those markers there, and because we're winnowing this down, here's the picture I have. At the broadest sense, there's the crowd. They've dropped out. Now we've got the Jews. They're about to drop out. Then we're going to get to the disciples. They're going to fail the test. Then we're going to get to the 12. They're not going anywhere, but they don't understand. And then Jesus doesn't even say, well, thanks for sticking with me, guys. Did I not choose you? So I really see this sort of winnowing coming down. And so that's that's the, the theme I see happening in six, going from the broadest possible expanse, narrower, 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 narrower. Jake and JP. So I got more of a logistical question. Okay. When do you think the transition happens where Jesus moves into the synagogue? Because verse 25, it seems like they're like on the beach and, oh, look at you. Well, I, I think well, 25 just says when they found him. They don't say where they found him. They get to the other side, but he's not immediately there. They have to find him having gotten to the other side. I think most naturally they find him in the synagogue. I, I, there's, it, 
I wouldn't be troubled if we're because John doesn't give us any walking and talking imagery. Um, I'd assume we're there the whole time, but they could have been walking and talking. So what subset of the crowd do you think showed up in the synagogue? I mean, how many right. are we talking, do you think? Oh, not, not, not too many. The synagogue couldn't house a ton of people. Now, maybe there's people in the doorways, but Jesus wouldn't be talking loudly enough in a small synagogue for people to hear 100 yards out not like some of the natural amphitheaters Jesus spoke in. So this is, well, I notice also the crowd becomes the Jews. So in, in 26, in 25, let me get back to John, 625. That's a good point. When they, okay, verse 22, on the next day, the crowd. And then it's always they, them, they, them, they, right? So you got the antecedent of the pronoun they and them moving forward is the crowd. However, it changes in verse 41, the Jews. So the question then is, is this a new group of people we're dealing with? The problem is it can't be an entirely new group of people because Jesus references what the crowd said. Because Jesus says to them um, in verse, um, where is it? Hold on. Yeah, so verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died is a rebuttal to verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And Jesus adds on, yeah, and they died. So there has to be a significant overlap between the crowd and the Jews. There's a couple possibilities what's going on there. Um, Probably the most natural would be the crowd. What do you call the group of people who were the crowd, but also there are some people who began in the synagogue? We're calling the Jews. I'm grabbing both groups. Just There's this new mingled group. The guys who came across in boats, plus the people who are already at the synagogue, and they make up the new group, the Jews. That's possible. The other possibility, um, and one of the commentaries I read said, is that as the, the crowd begins to evidence their unbelief, John starts calling them, the Jews are the regular against Jesus' people in John's gospel. As we saw in John 7, the the people in Jerusalem feared to say it openly for fear of the Jews. Surely the people in Jerusalem are Jews. But the Jews in John are always the the other team, Jews. Sure, yeah, yeah. So it's possible he's calling them this as kind of in the same way that their titles for Jesus are dropping. John's titles are the dropping. Or it's possible this is just the, the name he's given to this new melding of the people who came over in the boats and the people who were already there. So then last question. Um, I remember you were saying with the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon in the Plain that um, Jesus kind of gave that sermon over and over again, yeah. right? Um, do you think this is also given over and over again or this just happened once? Well, we know from, I believe, Mark, he fed 5,000 in another place, what, three or 4,000? So I think this event, because of the lining up of details, what the four Gospels cover is the same event. Whether or not Jesus at least did one other miraculous feeding miracle, whether or not he did more than that, I know not. I do think the, what we call the feeding of the 5,000 in all four Gospels refer to the same event. The details, he immediately sent the crowd away. He walks on water afterwards in two of the other Gospel accounts. Uh, Luke doesn't have anything afterwards. But specifically this, I'm the bread of life and eating and drinking. Do you think he gave that more than once or? It's entirely possible. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. So this is going off of Jim's question a little bit. I mean, the key that you said here in 35, he goes over that really quick. And I think if you're listening, you can sneeze and miss the key and then you're lost, right? Right. So um, that's going off of Jim's question of, if again, if you miss that key, you're lost. And I just don't know if, if Jesus gave this over and over again, then I could go, oh, yeah. yeah, you should get it by the third or fourth time. But if you heard this first off, yeah. and again, your buddy is like, what did he say? And he was like, I don't know. He's talking about eating my flesh. I don't know. Now, one thing to be clear, they, they, if they had thought he was actually speaking about eating flesh and drinking blood, there'd be a riot. They'd accuse him of going against the law of Moses, and they'd bring him up on charges of, of like blasphemy. No one does that. So I think everyone understands he's speaking in some metaphorical way, and they're not tracking. 
They're, they're just simply not tracking. But given how they're going to freak out about, he said, destroy this temple in three days. Like, he speaks against Moses. Here'd be a perfect opportunity. Le- Leviticus 17 makes it clear. Anyone who eats, I will set my face against them if they eat blood. It's, the blood's mine. It makes atonement. So if they in any way thought he was literally advocating blood drinking, they'd have a they'd have a great charge to bring up against him. And no one does. They just scratch their heads and say, that's really hard. So I think it's clear they understand it's some sort of metaphor. And they don't get it. But no, you're... you're this is, I mean, even all of this reading takes, what, five minutes? So there, there well could be more or repetition, or as you've said, we've seen in other places, Jesus taught the same sorts of things many times. That's all possible, but I, I don't know, because John doesn't tell us this gets repeated. Um, when, and the other point being, Jesus from the outset recognize, recognizes them as unbelievers, because his opening greeting to them is not, hey, thanks, let me show you a little more. It's, you're not here for the right reasons. And so it, it's, he's exposing and revealing that. He's going to tell them, you've seen and yet you do not believe. So this isn't about neutral people being wooed to Christ. This is about Jesus unmasking unbelief that looks like discipleship. I mean, that's, that's what's scary. These are people following him, and it's going to go all the way down, even to the 12, this winnowing. Yes. So one thing that trips me up in this area, yeah. I keep thinking, well, of course they're not going to understand it because God has to open their mind mm-hmm. for them to understand it. Mm-hmm. So can you elaborate on that? Oh, yeah. That's precisely what Jesus says. So the first time they trip up on this, right, let's go to uh, verse... Yeah, let's go to verse 41. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I and the bread come down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? And Jesus, and I made this point last week, Jesus does not then think to himself, oh dear, I need to adjust how I'm doing things. He doubles down on exactly what you just said. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. So no, Jesus freely admits, oh yeah, unless you have divine enablement, you're not going to be able to swallow this. You're not going to be able to handle this. You're not going to be able to take this. And he's already declared they don't. And so he's showing that. Yeah. I mean, no, this, I mean, the sovereignty of God shows up in a challenging way here, but that's exactly what Jesus says. Yeah, you, you can't. He's going to say the same thing in verse 65. After, after um, like you go to 60. Let's read from 60 to 65, um, where we're going to look at next week. So picking up right where we left off. When many of his disciples heard that, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus himself, knowing that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, and he didn't say, come on, guys, let me, do you take offense at this? then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who betrayed him. And he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father, by the Father. So, yeah, Jesus, Jesus absolutely brings up the fact you're not, you can't accept this without divine enablement. Sorry. sorry. I mean, no, and it's hard because we look at that and be like, that sounds hard. That's what he says. Uh, and we need to, to, to then synthesize that with everything else he says. I think he defines the drawing as teaching back in last week, right? So, um, where is it? Yeah, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father sent me, draws him, and I'll raise him on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. I think there in 45, Jesus is describing what it means to be drawn by God. It's not some violent against your will thing. Rather, it's a teaching. It's a revealing of truth. It's a, it's a um, revela- revelatory event where truth is revealed by God. And then they come 
Because he says in the very next verse after that, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So he equates drawing, get this, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws him. Everyone who has heard and been taught by God comes to me. So Jesus is lining up his parallel, being drawn by God, being taught by God as those who come to him. So I think he's describing what God's drawing entails. And it's not some forceful twisting around behind your back thing. Rather, it's being, it's, it's revelatory. It's, it's information-based. Um, Jesus will later say, no one knows the Father except the Son and whoever the Son chooses to reveal him to. So, um, no, these are hard teachings, no doubt. There's a reason the disciples are scratching their heads and this is hard. And I'm not going to try to PR Jesus to make it look less hard than it is. I do think it synthesizes, but no, there's a huge claim to authority here. And, and it, what it gets back to, and we'll, we'll pick this up next week, if Jesus has not yet done the works to prove he's the prophet like Moses, you might be able to legitimately say this is kind of tough. But if he has done the works to indicate his claim to be the prophet like Moses, if, if like chapter 5 says, the Father, God the Father, is testifying about him through his works, what is the one duty and obligation you have to the prophet like Moses? Listen to him. I'll raise up from among your brothers a prophet like you, like me. It is to him you shall listen. Whoever to him will not listen, God will require it. And what, is, what does John say the disciples say in verse 60? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So if you've identified him as the prophet, and you know your one responsibility is not to make him king, but to listen to his teaching, then I think Simon Peter here alone and the 12 passed the test in verse 67. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I'm not entirely sure what you mean, but I know it's true, and I know I need it, and so I'm staying put. Yes, right on, excellent. So the, the logic is more than adequate, sufficient, abundant proof has been made. This is the prophet like Moses. Nicodemus, as early as chapter 3, no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him, with you. And then Jesus tests to see if people are willing to really humble themselves and take some hard teaching because he's proven he's a prophet like Moses. And no, they won't. No, they won't. But the whole flow of he's done the works to vindicate the claim, now on that basis, and they've connected the dots. This is indeed the prophet like Moses. There's a sense in which, let's see if you really believe that. No, they don't. They won't listen to his teaching. They go home. Okay. That's, that's to, to make it seem not more fair, but less harsh. First, there's a demonstration of, of, of credentials. That he, Jesus does, in John 5, if I testify concerning myself alone, my testimony is not valid. Jesus does not demand we take his claims on his authority alone. There's a, there's a plurality and a sufficiency of witness. But after that plurality and sufficiency of witness comes, Jesus will require the full rights and privileges of the prophet like Moses, the one come down from heaven, which is I alone, not me, Jeremy. Jesus alone mediates the knowledge of God. And even if some of those things are hard, you cling to them and you don't go anywhere. And you ask for understanding. That's the proper response. That's what we're seeing. That's what Jesus is demanding of his followers, of his disciples, and of the 12. And of all of them, the 12, the only ones who pass that test. So, so Jesus doesn't soften his claims. He, he intensifies them. And it brings to light the unbelief of the crowds and the Jews and many of the disciples. Okay. Yes, Linda. Okay, so they already, from back in chapter 5, the healing at the pool, they already wanted to kill him. Yes, the he Jews knows, in Jerusalem did, yes. Yes, he knows that. And then now here they are, this group is arguing amongst themselves, not believing any, you know, what he's saying, telling them. So is the synagogue open to, like, why wouldn't they be preventing him if they're thinking he's not who he claims to be? Why would he be allowed to even teach in the synagogue? Is it open to... Any Jewish man who wants to stand up and speak? or the, the scriptures don't give us much insight into the Jewish synagogue system, extra biblically. The, yeah, the, extra biblically, men in the community could read from the scroll. We get in Luke 4, Jesus just picks up the scroll of Isaiah and reads of it. 
the, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to declare good news to the poor and to captives, right? So it does appear as like men in the community can read from the Torah scrolls. Extra biblically, that's what we get confirmed. It's the whole, the whole, so you've got the priesthood and the Sadducees, which are all about the priests, the offices. The Pharisees is actually a lay movement as much as they themselves like to make big deals of themselves. Anyone could be a Pharisee. And so they didn't have any social rank other than the rank given to them by virtue of being a Pharisee. And so, no, it was a grassroots movement of Torah schools. I mean, good grief. You can so sympathize with it. The notion is we, we were ignorant of God's law. God sent us to Babylon. He disciplined us. We don't ever want to happen, make that happen again. So let's set up Torah schools in every town where every town they're going to be reading a scripture where the men can read from and hear it. Oh, it sounds great at its outset, right? Um, that's what it was. But yeah, there's, from what we can tell, it'd be open to all the men in the community um, and any man could read from it. But Jesus is still, they're still in awe of him as a miracle worker because go all the way back to 6.1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is, on the, in the, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd is following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. So they are fully convinced Jesus is a powerful miracle worker. They get that much, which is, again, another theme in John, why a faith that's rooted in and supported by miracles is not going to cut it. At the end of chapter 2, while Jesus was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, for his part, did not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in man and didn't need anyone to testify concerning man. Then we get the then we get Nicodemus showing up with all of his platitudes. We teach her we know you're from God because no one can do the signs you can do. And Jesus just takes him head on. Nicodemus, what makes you think you can see truth? Unless you're, it's the same notion, divine dependence, similar to no one can come to me. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Totally, totally emasculating. You are powerless to make yourself see. You, you have as much power to see as you do to birth yourself. That, that's what he says to Nicodemus. Um, and so then in chapter 4, he goes back to Galilee, and the nobleman comes out, and his son's sick, and Jesus says, unless I do signs and miracles, you people simply will not believe. Well, here it comes to a head in six. Here's a big crowd following Jesus because of miracles. Jesus, don't miss it, when he rebukes them. I mean, again, this has got to be anticlimactic. They, they want to see Jesus. They get up the next morning. They get in boats to go see Jesus. When they find Jesus, verse 25, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. I mean, right off the, it's again, another like, I mean, it's not like a brutal attack, but it's, you, you and I could have been more, um, what's the word? We could have been more diplomatic, <laughs> but he wasn't trying to be diplomatic. The most loving thing you do to this crowd is make it clear you're, you're not on team Jesus. You're not one of my disciples. You're not my people. You're not. And so, sorry, I'm going. No, go ahead. No. So that's the movement through John's gospel with the signs and miracles being done. Now, we have seen people come to faith, or at least their faith be increased. So in chapter 2, Jesus turns the water to wine. The disciples saw it, and they beheld his glory, and they believed. John says he wrote the gospel. Many other signs Jesus did that are not written in this gospel. John 20, 30 and 31, or 29 and 30. Many other signs Jesus did in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this gospel, but these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing may have life in his name. So this book, some have called it a book of signs, meant to, to encourage, strengthen, bring us to faith. So the, the, the critical issue then is seeing the actual sign, seeing its significance. They don't. That's Jesus' rebuke to them. You're not here because you saw signs. Well, in one sense, that's precisely why they're there. But they never saw past food, hungry, yum. Like that's, that's as far as they got. And they want to do it again. And so Jesus, that's not, that's, you should be seeing more in this than that. Um, and back to Jim's point, that's part of him showing they don't get more. He's going to give them some clues. And to JP, your point, yeah, it's had to blink and you miss it. But his ultimate rebuke is they should have been picking up some of this stuff without any teaching. I mean, he's disappointed in 26 because they didn't put more together. They just saw food, yum, you know, not hungry, yay. And they wanted more of that. 
So, so anyway, that's well because I mean because he's already kind of told them before this I'm not going to do that again. So right. why would they even stay there and listen? But I mean we're going to get to that next week that they're all going to leave. But well, for all you know, I know, the Jews left already. They drop out. We get the last word on the Jews. The last word on the Jews is 52. After that, 60. It's the disciples who begin to fall away. The Jews are done in this text. The Jews drop out of chapter 6. Now we're on to the defection of the disciples. Just like the crowd dropped out at 41. So you start with the crowd. They drop out at 41. The Jews enter. The Jews drop out at 52. And the disciple, that's their last word. And then the disciples show up in 60. And they start dropping out at 66. And then we get down to the twelve. Like that's, that's the movement of the text. So presumably the Jews have checked out and they're gone. They're done. Because okay. now we're looking at an even smaller group, his disciples, okay. and they're going to start leaving at 66. So, so yeah. Okay. Five minutes. Any other thoughts? Liz, who? Dennis. Uh, you had mentioned, this is just kind of a statement, that the ultimate need that we uh, need is the death of Jesus. Um, we need, it's interesting, we, we need to eat and drink of him, and we need his death so we can receive his life, yeah. right? Yeah. And we need the life of Christ, and the right. only way to get that is through the death and, and the resurrection, yeah. and and that's uh, uh, just really the way you put that, you know, and then you said we can see what we need every day, eating and drinking and sleep, but we're all still going to die. But the ultimate need we need is eternal life, and to get that it's by putting our faith and trust in Christ and drinking and eating of him daily. And what would, I think, would be praying and reading God's word, meditating on what he's done for us, and doing, obeying him. Yeah. And trusting him, and and someday our faith's going to turn to sight. <laughs> yeah. I thought we would be doing that forever, but we won't because our faith will end when we get yeah. to heaven. Yeah, John fifteen's going to unpack more of what it means to abide in Him. He just simply declares the one. And again, notice the present tenses in most of of, of the of the text here, um, which is not incidental. Um, here, hold on. Whoever feeds or is feeding on my flesh and drinking my blood drinks, it's the drinks, that's present tense, um, has eternal life. And I raised one last day. Whoever feeds or is feeding on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And so the one who's drinking and the one who's eating is the one who is abiding. Um, and yeah, it's, it's true faith begun won't cease. So can I interject? I yeah. really enjoyed the point in the sermon about how God could have created us without a need for food, yeah. perfectly within his ability to yeah, do yeah. so. And we have this built in picture of something that you get some of and it sustains you, but then you need more. Yeah. And you have to keep coming back to it yeah. to to continue to live. Just never thought of that. I thought that was a really good picture of how you can't just have this one spiritual moment and get really close to God and then just, I'm good forever, you know, about how we yeah. have to keep coming back. And it's simple, but it's a wonderful metaphor. Well, and when Jesus insists, my, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, then when we make the analogy, are we saying, what I'm trying to say is it's not that faith in Jesus is like eating. Eating and drinking is like faith in Jesus. Marriage is like Christ in the church. Christ in the church is not like marriage. Which one's, which one's the authentic, real thing, and which is the thing that's derivative and like it? And when Jesus says, my, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, I'm just thinking back to how if God created marriage to anticipate and prepare us for Christ in the church, if God created sleep, again, just stop and think about sleep. Describe like describing to some sentient computer or some alien race or something, people. What well, they walk around, they're really busy and they do stuff, and then they lie down unconscious and prone and undefended, helpless. It's just, we, we're so used to it, we don't recognize how strange it is. Isn't, I mean, just imagine if your car had to go to sleep for eight hours a day, or your computer or something, some other thing. No, you expect it to work when you're supposed to work. And God made us 
and again, the most powerful man in the world lies helpless and prone and exposed to any of his enemies or foes for eight hours a day. Um, or roughly, let's say eight, but I mean, obviously, more or less. But like, if, one of the reasons is because God's not like that. But then you see Jesus asleep in a boat, and you're like, whoa. Um, and, and so God creates our need for food. The plants get a lot of their energy just from moisture around them and the sunlight. God could have made us that way. Or you could eat a meal once and like every five years they eat again. I mean, we see bears can eat for a whole season. Yet God has this repeated pattern of I'm, my body starts, starts nagging me and then starts screaming at me. I need drink. I need food. And this is to set up. And it, it, here's another metaphor. How regularly and how frequently ought we to be to return to the Lord in prayer and his word? We eat three square meals a day, most of us. I mean, maybe some of you do two, some of you do four. But if, if it certainly means Sunday can't be your time with the Lord. You don't eat once a week, right? So that might be a significant indicator. Just saying. Well, it's just like you think of like like First Peter, right? Like newborn babes eagerly desire the pure milk of the word. How often do babies want milk? Once a week? Every two to three hours. Amen. So the frequency isn't accidental either, I think. Yes. I was just going to say, and to add to Jake's point and your point, you know, not only do we have to do it, um, but God's also made it enjoyable as far as yeah. to eat. And I think it's the same way yeah. in the word. The yeah. more you get into it, the more you enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you go the other way, if you, the analogies always break down somewhere. But if you go the other way and you don't eat very long, well, pretty soon you really don't want to eat. You're just going to die. Yeah. And <laughs> same, with, same thing with the word. Yeah. Well, you could, you could unpack the fact that eating can be very pleasurable. I mean, people will pay good money for very flavorful, tastefully well-produced food. I mean, we've all just had food that you're just eating just because you need to eat something. But the potential is that, that satiating hunger and thirst can be incredibly pleasing. Um, okay, who's, who's hand we got there? Greg, bring us home, Greg. We're at time. Bring us home. I would just remind us, okay. <clears throat> as it says in, in John 6, that no one comes unless the Father draws him, and then we learn further that um, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So we, we talked last week about that being hearing God's word. Well, I would just remind us that we have been given this ministry of reconciliation, so the world won't, won't hear the word of God uh, through Jesus anymore, right. uh, but through us. So, yeah. Amen ministers of reconciliation have a happy fourth have a, a blessed week see you all god willing next sunday or sooner god bless